weeks, God, or Luke, in fact, has been showing us in the book of Acts, he's been showing us God at work in very different places and among very different kinds of people. Two weeks ago, you may remember, we were in the city of Athens, the center of learning and philosophy in the ancient world. Then last week, we were in Corinth, the Las Vegas of the ancient world, the party city. And this morning, we come to Ephesus. What was Ephesus famous for? It was the magic capital of the ancient world. I don't mean the Paul Daniels kind of magic. Ephesus was a city fascinated by sorcery, spells, and the occult. The Ephesians were people up to their eyeballs in pagan magic. So what will happen when God's word arrives in that kind of situation? We're going to find out by turning to Acts chapter 19. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1115. Acts chapter 19. Before we look at this, I'm going to read the whole chapter. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. 
A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from our business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but that also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quietened the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. This is God's word. We've said that Ephesus was the magic capital of the ancient world. And as Paul arrives in this city that is fascinated by spiritual powers, he insists on the need for the Holy Spirit who is essential for true Christian life. Verse 1 tells us he found some disciples in Ephesus. 
Normally, when we read the word disciple, we assume we're reading about followers of Jesus. And these people may have appeared that way. But Paul quickly has some suspicions. We're not told how long it took or why he sensed something was missing. But at some point he asks them in verse 2, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. That translation is a little bit misleading. Literally, they say, we have not heard if the Holy Spirit is. And in fact, they're not saying we've never heard about the Holy Spirit. They're saying we have not heard that the Holy Spirit has come. They had certainly heard about the Holy Spirit. We know that from verse 3. Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. John is John the Baptist. He was a relative of Jesus, and in a sense, John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. His job was to announce the arrival of God's Messiah and to prepare the people for the Messiah's arrival. Back in Luke's gospel, we're told that John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John called people to acknowledge their sin and turn from it. When someone came forward to be baptized by John, that's what they were doing. But admitting your sin and turning from your sin isn't enough. We need someone who can forgive our sin. When we turn from sin, we need a savior we can turn to. And so John said to those he was baptizing, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So people who knew John would certainly have heard about the Holy Spirit. His baptism was a preparation Those who took the step of being baptized by John were ready to accept Jesus just as soon as they were introduced to him. And that's the situation of these disciples that Paul finds in Ephesus. They have turned from their rebellion against God, but they've not yet found the Savior they need. And so they've not yet received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to those who believe in the Savior. These people are primed and ready. They just need the person to put their trust in. And in verse 4, Paul does that. He points them to Jesus. Then verse 5 says, On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Back in Acts chapter 2, We were told about the day of Pentecost. On that day in Jerusalem, God poured out his spirit and a new era began on that day. In this new era, trusting in Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit make up one package. They go together. But as we've traveled through Acts, we've noticed that when a new group of people turn to Jesus, 
God gives them their own little mini Pentecost. Instead of the normal package, the Holy Spirit comes to them after they believe in Jesus. This is the third time that has happened. First, it happened with the Samaritans in chapter 8, a group of people. Then the Gentiles in chapter 10, and now these disciples of John. These disciples had been living in a kind of halfway state. Repentant, ready to receive the Savior, but not knowing who the Savior was. And so God graciously gives them their own little mini Pentecost. It's a way of assuring them that they're accepted. They're part of God's family now. And as we think about these disciples in Ephesus, we have to say they were in a unique situation. Things aren't going to happen that that way today because there are no followers of John the Baptist today. But this does show us two things that have relevance for everyone. First of all, it shows us there is no genuine Christianity without the Holy Spirit. There are no genuine Christians without the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that every genuine Christian is going to speak in tongues and prophesy. The rest of the New Testament explains those are gifts given to some Christians. All Christians have spiritual gifts. Not all Christians have these particular gifts. And we shouldn't think of tongues and prophecy as first-class gifts or gold medal gifts. They may be more spectacular than other gifts, such as service or encouragement or leadership or showing mercy. Tongues and prophecy may be more spectacular than those things, but they are not more useful than those other gifts. And they're certainly not more spiritual than those gifts. All Christians have gifts, and all Christians have the Spirit who gives the gifts. There is no genuine Christianity without the Holy Spirit. And therefore, because that's true, there are no associate members in the kingdom of God. What I mean is, hanging around Christians and participating in church activities doesn't mean you are part of God's family. Associating yourself with Christianity does not get you into God's kingdom. Fraternizing with the family doesn't mean you're in the family. Everyone is welcome when we gather together here. The welcome that you get at the door is sincere. It's genuine. But please don't take that warm welcome the wrong way. Being here and getting into the habit of being here doesn't make you a Christian. When Paul met these so-called disciples in Ephesus, he pressed them to discover if they were genuine disciples. Genuine disciples are men and women who recognize their sin and recognize their only hope for salvation from sin is Jesus. And then they trust him as the one who died as their substitute, taking the punishment they deserve. And along with trust in Jesus, God gives that man or woman the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit comes as the oxygen that we need to live for God and grow in obedience to God. It's impossible to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. You can do religious things, but you can't live the Christian life. And so the question is, where are you this morning? Are you still at the association stage? Still finding out? Maybe you're still enjoying mixing and mingling with friendly people. Or have you begun to see that actually the Bible is right when it calls you a sinner? Have you begun to see that trying to be king or queen of your own life is actually rebellion against God? Are you beginning to feel some agitation over that? Does it feel like a burden? If any of that describes you, then press on further. Being here isn't enough. Recognizing your sin isn't enough. You need to put your trust in Jesus. Not just in a general sense, but in the sense that he's your savior. He paid for your sin. Please don't be content to think of yourself as an associate member of God's family. Press on and become a true member. There are no associate members. We started by saying that Ephesus was a city steeped in pagan magic. But God's power has come to this city. We've seen his power at work in these followers of John. And as Paul shares the good news about Jesus for two years in Ephesus, verse 10 describes the result for us. All the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. The whole area is being affected. And Luke goes on to tell us some of what happened during those two years. He presents us with the reality of the untamable God. Miracle versus magic. There are plenty of miracles in the book of Acts. But in verse 11, look what Luke says. Notice what Luke says. He says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Now, all miracles are by definition extraordinary. So Luke is telling us these particular miracles are doubly unusual. And he describes some of them in verse 12. Even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched Paul were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured And the evil spirits left them. Notice there is no indication that Paul initiated this or that he encouraged it in any way. Paul is not running a holy hanky business here. People are just taking away things that he had worn or used. But Luke is also clear in verse 11 that God did these things through Paul. This is God's power. So what are we to make of this? Should we expect similar things today? Well, remember where these extraordinary miracles are taking place. 
They're taking place in the magic capital of the ancient world. One writer says the unusual character of these people and their beliefs about magic leads to the unusual form of the miracles. The unusual character of these people and their beliefs about magic leads to the unusual form of the miracles. I think that's very helpful. If we ignore the context here, we are left thinking, what is this? But when we realize what Ephesus was like, we can see this is God's way of winning the people's respect for Paul. So we're not to try and imitate this today. As we've said, there's no indication Paul was trying to heal people this way. But it's equally important for us to see that when it suits God's purposes, he is well able to do things like this. And part of his purpose here in Ephesus is not only to gain an audience for Paul's message, it's to teach these people the difference between miracles and magic. So let's think about what magic is. And what miracle is. Magic is an attempt to manipulate God or some other spiritual power into doing what you want. Miracle is what God chooses to do. Miracles are beyond our ability to control. Magic tries to use rituals, spells and charms to get God to do our will. It's about special words and special rituals to get God to serve our purposes. Miracle is about God doing something unusual according to his own will and for his own purposes. We have to say that on that definition, a lot of religion today is really an attempt at magic. It's an attempt to manipulate God into doing what people want through religious rituals or religious words. But genuine Christianity is about bringing ourselves in line with what God is doing, not the other way around. So even as we ask God for things, we pray, don't we, your will be done. The Ephesians are people used to magic. That's what they know. And so at first, they interpret the miracles as magic. Look at verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. These exorcists happen to be Jewish, but really they are dabbling in magic. They hear the message about Jesus and they see the healings. So they assume that Jesus is the magic word. They think there's obviously some power in that name. 
maybe we can make it work for us. But it doesn't work for them. In fact, they get their behinds soundly kicked by a demon-possessed man. The name of Jesus is not a magic word. God was at work through Paul because Paul belonged to Jesus. Paul was serving Jesus. The sons of Sceva didn't even know Jesus. They could only refer to him as Jesus whom Paul preaches. That one, that's who we mean. On the lips of these men, the name of Jesus was a powerless name. They didn't know him. They didn't have the Holy Spirit living in them. And they were trying to use Jesus' name to manipulate God. But God will not be manipulated. Even the demons know that. They know who belongs to God and who doesn't. They know who to be afraid of and they know who's just an imposter. God's servants are as well known in hell as they are in heaven. Jesus' name is not a magic word you can fool heaven or hell with. So if you are treating Jesus that way, then wake up. If you're refusing to turn your life over to God, and if you're living to serve yourself, don't try and sweeten God up with the odd prayer in Jesus' name. Or the odd praise song on a Sunday in Jesus' name. And don't think you can fend off the devil with the magic word Jesus. God will not be manipulated and the devil will not be fooled. God is not at the beck and call of anyone who says, in the name of Jesus. And the devil doesn't have to back away just because someone says, in the name of Jesus. Don't try to dabble in Jesus. Give your life to him. Then the devil will fear you and you'll find that in God you have all you need. God will not be tamed. And the people in Ephesus begin to realize it. Look at verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus... They were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. These new believers in Ephesus realize they have to make a clean break with the past. They realize they can't hedge their bets when it comes to spiritual powers. They can't try and play the field. That's what magic does. It tries to appease harmful spirits and get the support of good ones. But there is no place for that in the Christian's life. We have the Holy Spirit. We don't need the help of other spirits, nor do we need to try and appease other spirits. So if you have any interest or any involvement in astrology, 
or horoscopes, or Wicca, paganism, tarot cards, Ouija boards, seances, anything like that, anything with a hint of the occult, then confess it to God and make a clean break with it. Don't keep it in the cupboard just in case. Sweep your life clean of it. You can't be halfway committed to Jesus any more than you can be halfway pregnant. Here in Ephesus, we're told the value of the magic scrolls was 50,000 drachmas. A drachma was a day's wage. So this stuff was not cheap. These people had made major investments in this. But they make a clean break with it. That's what genuine faith and the presence of the Holy Spirit does. It transforms our allegiance and our direction in life. God is breaking the spell in this city filled with magic. He's beginning to transform this city. After telling us about men and women making a clean break with their past, look what verse 20 says. In this way... The word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And when God's word spreads and grows in power, it disturbs the peace. That's what we see in the final section of our passage. The true God challenges false saviors. Look down to verse 23. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. The way is another name for Christianity. It's the way to God. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but that also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and that the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Artemis was the goddess of fertility. She was also known as Diana. And the worship of Artemis was tied up with the Ephesians' involvement in magic. Apparently, the statue of Artemis wore a zodiac necklace, indicating that she was in control of the stars. And her statue was engraved with magical words and phrases. Historians tell us Artemis was known by her followers as both Savior and the one who answers prayer. She was seen as having lordship over the supernatural powers, including the demons. The Ephesians looked at her as their source of security, their Savior. That was the case not only in a spiritual sense, but also financially. The temple of Artemis was the largest building in the Greek world. It was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. 
It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It brought in a lot of business for the people of Ephesus. And here we meet this man, Demetrius, who made and sold many replicas of the temple of Artemis. They were probably not too different from that ornament of the Eiffel Tower you have on your mantelpiece. Archaeologists have found examples of these replicas. They've even found the molds that were used to make them. And their purpose, of course, was worship, not just decoration. Demetrius seems to have been a kind of trade union leader for the silversmiths. Verse 25 says he also called together the workmen in related fields. In Ephesus then, magic, idol worship, business, and pride in being an Ephesian, all those things are tangled up together. Together, those are the things the Ephesians look to for security. But now the spread of God's word is causing a crisis for these people. God's word and the power of his word is threatening their security. Those other saviors they're looking to are beginning to suffer. People turning to Jesus means less demand for magic scrolls and for idols. If it keeps going this way, Ephesus might lose its reputation and its business. The inroads being made by the Holy Spirit are threatening the false saviors of this society. It's as if the Holy Spirit is taking this society and shaking it to its roots. God is disturbing the peace. You can see that in verse 26. Demetrius says, This fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. A few weeks ago when Paul was in Philippi, we saw that people's resistance to the gospel is not always based on intellectual reasons. And that is certainly true here. It makes no logical sense to worship something you made yourself. But Demetrius and his colleagues are making a good income out of man-made gods. And yet I don't think it's just about money for Demetrius. Verse 27 suggests that to some degree, Demetrius is concerned that Artemis not be robbed of her divine majesty. When it comes to religion, most people like what they know. They like what they're familiar with. They resist anything that rocks the foundations of what they're used to and what they're comfortable with. Maybe you feel that as we look at the Bible together. Maybe you grew up with the idea that Christianity was about doing your best or trying to be a good person or trying to be respectful to others. But as we look at the Bible together, maybe you're beginning to see that Jesus asks much more from us than that. He asks us to trust him with our whole lives, to lay our ambitions and abilities and minds and bodies at his feet. 
That makes us uncomfortable. It disturbs us. Of course, in return for all that we have, Jesus gives us all that he has. Freedom from the power of sin, purpose for life, grace and power to live this life, peace in our hearts, a place in God's family, the assurance that he is with us, and ultimately an eternity in God's presence. It's not as if we're doing badly out of the exchange here. But we have trouble seeing it that way. When God's word comes and says, give me everything, trust me with your whole life, and God's word says that, it shakes the foundations of our lives. It challenges the other things we've been leaning on and looking to for security. And often we don't like it. We resist it. That's what Demetrius and his friends do. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. The outdoor theater in Ephesus seated around 28,000 people. In fact, it's still standing today in almost perfect condition. We're told that Paul wanted to go there, but his friends managed to keep him from going. They may well have had to sit on him to do that, but they do manage to keep him away. And finally, it's only the intervention of the city clerk which calms the whole thing down. And notice how he does it. He does it by appealing to what these people hold most dear. His argument is, we all know that the image of Artemis came to us from heaven. We all know Ephesus has a secure place in the world. He may as well have been stroking them on the head. There, there. All the things you've been trusting in are going to be okay. And then he says, down in verse 36, Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are pro-counsels. You can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. The clerk calms these people by reassuring them about their false senses of security. And then he tells them Rome is a bigger threat to those things than Jesus is. He tells them, so long as you don't annoy the Romans, then your business and your beloved Artemis and the reputation of the city will be safe. Don't worry about this guy Paul and the Jesus that he's preaching. They aren't a threat. 
We have to say, Demetrius had more insight than the city clerk does. Demetrius saw that if the word of God continued to progress, it would topple the other saviors the Ephesians are trusting in. He saw that the word of God was a bigger threat to his idol business and to Artemis than the wrath of Rome was. And history has proved Demetrius right. Where is Artemis today? Where is her divine majesty today? Has history shown her to be a good savior? A good source of security for those who are trusting in her? Have those who trusted in her been shown to be wise? When a person or a society is trusting in false sources of security, and when God's word comes in into that life or that society, it will disturb the peace. If you're trusting in your job for your security, or the money that you've saved, or maybe in your own version of religion, or in your family, then you will feel threatened by the word of God. God's word will break the spell of those false saviors. It will expose the fact that there is no genuine security in any of those things. If you're feeling your peace disturbed by the word of God, if the spell of those false saviors is being broken for you, then don't get angry like Demetrius did. And don't try and bury your head in the sand like the city clerk did. Don't keep telling yourself you'll be okay with those other saviors. No, have the courage to let go of what you've been trusting in. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. He's the only true savior. He's the only one who'll still be there when all those other things have fallen away. And if you are trusting in Jesus this morning, then let God's word reassure you that your trust is well placed. We're going to respond to this as we sing together, Jesus, all for Jesus. And then, O great God.